Hi, everyone. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Better Movement podcast. My guest this week is Ebony Rio. Ebony is a world-class expert on tendon pain. She's completed a PhD in this subject and is a postdoc researcher at Latrobe University. She's also a sports physiotherapist with significant experience treating tendon pain in professional ballet dancers, athletes, and Olympic athletes. In this episode, we talked about how tendons adapt to exercise, how they can degenerate with overuse, why degeneration doesn't always lead to pain, what the brain has to do with tendon pain, and how to treat painful tendons with exercise. Ebony is just incredibly knowledgeable on the subject of tendons, and I'm sure you'll learn a lot listening to her. Uh, thanks for coming on my podcast, Ebony. Uh, thanks so much for the invitation. I'm thrilled. Okay, guess what? We're going to talk about tendons because you're a tendon expert. So uh, first thing I want to ask is just the way that, how does the structure of a tendon relate to its function? Uh, so for example, like if I wanted to jump high or sprint fast, what kind of a tendon would I want to have in terms of like how long it is or how thick it is uh, or how flexible versus stiff? Yeah, that, that's an excellent place to start because where a tendon is and what it does is so intimately related with its function. So what I mean by that is if you want to run fast, you, you need a really nice Achilles spring. And most of our tendons in the lower limb act like springs to store and release energy for athletic function. So if we take a step back and we talk about tendon load first and then we'll get in onto function, I think what I'm about to say will make more sense. So if you think like a tendon, you can experience four different types of loads. And the first load to think about is tensile load. And tensile load is when you ask your tendon to store and release energy like a spring. And for it to be high tendon load, it must be fast, Todd. So anything done slowly is really easy for a tendon. Anything done statically is really easy for a tendon. It's when we apply it really quickly. It's all about speed. So, you know, running is harder than walking for the Achilles, for example. And that helps us then understand why we can see Achilles tendinopathy throughout the lifespan, because we see it in our athletic people that run and, um, you know, do lots of different sports. But you actually need your Achilles tendon like a spring even to step off a curb or to walk downstairs or to change direction really quickly. And that's why we can see a really heterogeneous group of people with that condition. But that's quite different to the patella tendon. So you said if you want to jump really high, well, actually, you need a fantastic patella tendon, a nice, a nice big, thick, you know, meaty patella tendon. And maximal load for our patella tendon is our jumping or our you know, lunging change of direction, but it's not things like running. So you can use this information about tendon load to help you with differential diagnosis for the person in front of you. If you have someone with anterior knee pain and they're a runner or a cyclist or a swimmer, it's not patella tendinopathy because the, the loads that that person's putting through is not high tensile load for that tendon. So our first load is our tensile load, our spring type load. 
Our second low tod is the compression when the tendon squashed against the bone. So that's as your tendon comes down, for example, the Achilles and inserts into the calcaneus. So as you go into dorsiflexion, and that's why people with insertional Achilles don't like walking around in bare feet because they get into dorsiflexion. It's like they... It's why they like wearing a shoe with a bit of a heel because it reduces the compression. It's why people with hamstring tendinopathy hate sitting or hate, you know, deadlifts because of the the flexion, the compression. So that's our our first two loads, our tensile load and our compressive load. Our third load is when you combine them. That's our most provocative load for tendons. So it's it's pushing off from dorsiflexion. So it's it's a really fast spring from a compressed position. Now, that's what our tendons are designed to do, and that's what we need to get them back to, which is why there's no isolated exercise that's ever going to fix everyone. You know, people say, should you do isometrics or eccentrics? The question is, how do each of those fit into the stages of your rehabilitation to to recover that spring? So we can't do spring load early on because it's provocative, but at some point we need to because that's what the tendon needs to do. And our fourth load is actually a load of differential diagnosis. And the reason I bring it up is it needs a different management. So the fourth load is when we shear and friction the outside um, sheath or the outside sliding membranes over the tendon, and it actually irritates those structures. It irritates the peritendon. So, Todd, an example of this would be someone that comes to see you who's just got a new bike and they've done a lot of cycling and they've done repeated dorsiflexion and plantar flexion, lots and lots of movement of that sheath over the tendon, but they haven't used their tendon like a spring. And what they get is this irritation of their peritendon. They get a, 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 a different condition which needs to be managed differently. So the structures of all of the tendons totally relate to their function and their function totally relates to their structure. So it's, it's so intimately related and understanding what each of those tendons um, does in that region helps you um, appreciate who's going to get the condition and also how thorough you need to be in rehabilitation. Yeah. So, so you mentioned that some of the tendons are like springs. Uh, are there other tendons that are designed to be less springy? I would imagine a spring can store store energy and give you power, but then other tendons, maybe their, their job is to just precisely transfer force from the muscle to the bone. Yeah, spot on. So these tendons that Hazel Screen refers to as more positional tendons. So things like our supraspinatus um, are more positional tendons. And even things like our, um, you know, things like the tibialis posterior, it's it's a synergist and it's probably less of a spring than, you know, our main plantar flexor complex. So that you know, the tendons of the upper limb can act like springs. You know, our elbow tendons, we we can hit a tennis racket, but their main function day-to-day is actually just low-level movement. So most of the people we see with elbow conditions, so lateral elbow pain, um, it's more related to low-load repetition as opposed to that spring-like behaviour. Okay. So um, how does the uh, length of the tendon relate to performance? Now, I, I've, I've heard that people that can jump really high, it seems like kind of a paradox, their calves look really small, but that's, is that because the tendon is long? And so why is it that guys with like small calves are really good jumpers and sprinters? So it, you can be small and mighty. So I would still hazard a guess that they um, have exceptional capacity. So 
tendon tendon spring, they would have exceptional tendon spring, but they also need a good enough muscle. So if you want to sprint, it's quite inefficient to contract your gastroc as you run up the straight. It, it's, it's quasi isometric actually. So it needs to be incredibly strong so that your Achilles tendon has a nice scaffold, a nice a stable base to be able to work like a spring. Um, so I'm not, I'm definitely not encouraging tiny calves. I'm encouraging um, good capacity regardless of how they look. <laughs> uh-huh. So, so um, how do we, ad- how much do tendons adapt? So let's say we've got a tendon that doesn't allow us to do what we want to do. How much can we make the tendon stiffer or thicker or, or better able to handle loads? It's a really good question. It depends a little bit on how old we are, whether or not there are already changes in the tendon, the type of training we do. Let's, I'm a, let's assume a healthy tendon. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to borrow a line from um, Laura Mosley. We are bioplastic. So every cell in our body is capable of change till the day we die. So our tendons will... Um, develop and uh, adapt and get thicker, probably similar to bone in terms of that pubertal cycle. So when we're younger, when we're older, there's some evidence that we probably don't increase the size of our tendon in a healthy tendon, but we can change its mechanical properties. So there's a systematic review by BOHM, B-O-H-M, that showed that strength training is a great way to change tendon stiffness and actually was more effective than plyometric training, which might be um, quite surprising for some of your listeners. Yeah, that's that's kind of surprising to me. So um, what exactly changes in the tendon? Are you just laying down more collagen fibers? We... That's such a good question, and I don't think anyone really knows the answer about what changes and what level. Our imaging is not uh, detailed enough to really give us an idea of it, and then a lot of our animal models don't replicate the human condition. So we we probably, you know, get more cross-links, you know, and improve the the stiffness. But the the other challenge is when you're doing strength training and you're improving tendon capacity, you're also improving muscle capacity and neural drive and all of those uh, factors as well. So I think it's it's so multifaceted, it's really tricky to know. Right, right. So with, with the, um, what, what kind of, do we know what kind of strength training is most likely to, well, actually, I want to jump back to another question. You mentioned the way bone adapts. Bone adapts really, really slowly. Right. So, I mean, if I wanted my bones to be, you know, thicker, that it might happen very slowly over time and muscles adapt very, very quickly. If I wanted my muscles to be a bigger cross-sectional area, I could get that done in, in a matter of a few weeks. Where do tendons fall in that spectrum? Are they more like bones or more like muscles? They are the turtle of the tortoise and the hare. They even more, are even so more than bones? Slow. Yeah. Yeah. Even more than bones. Yeah. They're slow. They're so slow. And that's the other challenge is that most of the research, Todd, has looked at relatively short timelines in terms of change. And so maybe we're not looking at the right thing at the right time. You know, if you're going to look at a change in a tendon after four weeks, you're going to see nothing. There's lots of research to show it doesn't change. It probably does change, but not at an appreciable level. So we probably don't have the right um, tools to measure change, but perhaps we need to be looking over a much longer time frame. We've followed um, kids every six months for three years, looking at the way the patella tendon actually um, uh, attaches and forms and 
grows and develops um, in in a really big international study. And so we're excited to start to look at those results. That's one of our PhD students. So so you're looking at the way young kids tendons adapt? Spot on. And that's that's an area where up until puberty, we suspect that there can be a decent amount of adaptation there, but then you kind of are stuck with whatever tendons, whatever tendons you have at like 16, that's pretty much the tendon you're going to keep. In some ways, yes, in terms of the um, probably the amount of collagen, um, but there can be other changes within the tendon. The, the other thing that we know, which is really interesting, is that some of our tendons like the Achilles and the patella tendon, there can be more adaptation if you do get changes in the tendon. So this is Sean Docking's work that shows that if you've got a pathological area, the tendon does get thicker. We don't exactly know the mechanism. Um, and but it's it's a compensation to make sure you have enough uh, structure capable of taking load because it's it's almost too hard for the body to fix that pathological area. You know, it's such a complex structure that it, it just kind of adapts, which is exciting because it means that we don't have to worry about treating the pathological area. Our job is to get the remaining healthy tendon, you know, load adaptive, um, you know, the muscle and the kinetic chain in the brain. So that's really exciting. Now that that doesn't happen in all tendons. The supraspinatus doesn't get thicker, as an example. Um, it doesn't happen in the tibialis posterior. So it's not all tendons, but we do have remarkable adaptation of across all of our systems. Can I make tendons stretchier? I mean, uh, I guess that would mean less stiff, wasn't it? More extensible. Or would I? Would there be any reason to want to do that? I'm not sure you'd want to do that. You wouldn't yeah. want to do that for athletic function. If I had this really like sloppy tendon, it's going to take me about 30 seconds to run the 100 meters. Although that's probably what it takes me at the moment anyway. So that was a bad example. <laughs> but for athletic activity, you want a really stiff spring. And that can be a little bit confusing to people because tendons can feel stiff in a negative clinical way. Like, oh, when I get out of bed in the morning, my Achilles tendon's really stiff. And so it's hard because we use this term stiffness really across a number of different descriptors. But from an athletic perspective, you want a, you want a stiff spring that's going to rebound really efficiently and, and, and propel you. Yeah, it sounds like a bad thing sometimes, and people associate flexibility with good things. So that's kind of why I wanted to clarify. Um, I I understand that immediately after exercise, I guess it's 24 hours or something, your tendon is a little bit less stiff. And does that make you a little bit less protected? So the 24-hour, we do see a change in the tendon over 24, 48, 72 hours, depending on how maximal the load was. That's what's really important. So if you do an activity that's well within your capacity, um, so for example, one of our honours students looked at runners who were habitual runners doing a 10-kilometre run and they had no changes in their tendon. But Sean has looked at racehorses and Australian football league players after a, after a game and saw a change 24, 48 and 72 hours post. So it depends on um, how maximal the load was, how much you asked your tendon to act like a spring. But getting back to your question, does it make you a bit more vulnerable? It might be one of the considerations around tendons don't like backing up load. They like time between load. 
So we get people to listen to their tendon 24 hours after they do a load. And if their tendon pain is low and stable, their tendon's happy and we can continue. But if their pain's gone up, we ask them, what did they do the day before? So they're, they're clinically a little bit more vulnerable doing repeated maximal loads. Okay. So let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the maladaption then. So you're loading up the tendons. We, we think they may have some capacity to adapt to stress and, and deal with a little bit better, but they definitely can uh, definitely get all messed up and, and maladapt. And, and those changes are, are, are kind of more obvious. Talk, talk us through the process of overusing the tendon and it's not able to adapt and bad things start to happen. Yeah. So actually rest and underload is as bad as overload. So it really is that, you know, that bell curve we talk about all the time. But if we go through the continuum model, um, it it explains a nice transition that it, it happens in this graded fashion. Now, in the body, the cell rules. That's true, true of bone. It's true of tendon. So the cell is selfish and the cell only cares about itself. So in a reactive tendon, the first change that we see are is a cell change. We see an increase in cell number. We're not exactly sure where they come from, but there's an increase in cell number. What and kinds that of change, cells are these? Well, as best we can tell, they're tenocytes, but they start to look different, Todd. So they start to become more rounded like chondrocytes because your, your, your environment um, dictates your structure. So if you have a tendon that is overloaded and is going through lots and lots of um, tensile load, lots of spring load, plus or minus maybe some compression as well, the fluid squashes the cell and we get a change in the cell number, but also the cell shape. They look far more like chondrocytes. And that makes sense because if I'm being squashed, I, I'm going to behave more like a, a chondrocyte. And just as a little aside for anyone that's worried about calcification in tendons, this, this is how to explain it to your patient. If I'm a cell in the body and you apply tensile load to me, I'm a tenocyte, I'm a tendon cell, and I make tendon, okay? If I am a cell in the body and you apply compressive load to me, I'm a chondrocyte and I make cartilage because I'm, I'm related to my environment. If you apply lots of tensile load to me and lots of compressive load to me, the best tissue we have in the body with dealing with those loads is bone. So I will make calcification, I'll make bone. So when we see calcific deposits in tendons, that's actually just evidence of um, load over time. Of So I say to people, don't worry about it. It actually doesn't change our management. It doesn't need to be surgically removed. But rather than just say to people, oh, don't worry about your imaging, actually explaining to them that your tendon has responded to load over time and you can see it. Like that is, there's visible evidence of load response. Um, so getting back to our model then, sorry, I got a little bit off track. We get a change in tendon cell uh, shape and number. And then the next thing the cell does, because it cares about itself and itself only, is it actually plumps these big proteoglycans, these big proteins around itself like bubble wrap. Um, and in a normal tendon, you have really small proteoglycans. You don't have very much water. But what happens with these big proteoglycans is they draw in the water. So that's actually when you look on imaging, that's, that's the swelling. It's not inflammatory. It's fluid. 
And that's really important because if people think your tendon is inflamed, if they think they have tendonitis, then they're going to opt for really passive approaches like rest ice anti-inflammatories and we know it's ineffective. So actually explaining and understanding the pathology is quite important because then you can help direct people to an active sort of treatment approach. So we have a cell change, we they bubble wrap themselves, we get an influx of water. And then because type 1 strong collagen is super hard to make, we the body tends to make type 3, which is thinner and sort of a little bit more vulnerable to um, to kind of breaking but it's not it's not um the whole tendon it's like these little pockets that this happens the final stage of kind of pathology is the influx of vessels and nerves um but they're not sensory nerves they seem to be nerves related to the vessel diameter so we've got this whole continuum of pathology remembering why are they coming in there why, why are the nerves and the uh and the blood uh, blood vessels coming in There's a few different theories. No one really knows um, is the honest answer, but it could relate to the change in pH we see and the body just trying to um, respond to, yeah, increased lactate in the tendon. Well, and and what about the uh, the swelling? Why is is there some theory about why that might be adaptive? Does it stiffen the tendon or because it needs more stiffness or... Well, it's a good way for the cell to protect itself with the proteoglycan. So that's okay. that's probably a key reason. Yeah. Yep. So okay. So these so these tenocytes are experiencing loss of space, and so they're kind of giving themselves a cushion. Yep. Okay. Get out of my way. Yep. Okay, I, I understand. And then the uh, the the collagen fibrils, the the type three, they're kind of like a crummy version of of the the type. One and so one. they're they're more likely to become misaligned. You want them kind of all lined up, and these ones can get, turn into spaghetti, huh? Yeah, that's right. They're they're less capable of taking load. But remember, as we said in the Achilles and the patella, this is happening in a region, and we still have all of that lovely normal tendon around it. So it's not like this amount of pathology just takes over the normal tendon. It's there's a relationship between how much pathology you have and how thick your cross-sectional areas of your whole tendon. So if you have a thicker tendon, you have a adaptation in relation to this, this change. Okay. So, so there's, there's the process of the tendon kind of degenerating, what's it called reactive and then disrepair and then the degenerative. Um, I know that 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 the reactive comes first and then disrepair. How long do these stages last? So let's say you uh, are, you know, you go, uh, your elbow feels fine, and then you you start playing tennis and hit a bunch of backhands, and now your elbow hurts. So I assume that's the reactive stage, and then if it keeps hurting, at some point you'll go to degenerative. Do we have any guidelines about how long that usually is, or do we just know that one comes after the other? So the first thing is, is that reactive is reversible. So if you see the model that Jill and um, Craig put together, Jill Cook and Craig Purdom, um, you'll see the shaded arrows. So if you have a um, reactive tendon and you you appropriately unload it, you can actually completely return to normal. So a sore elbow is an excellent way of getting your attention and changing your behaviour. Um, because if it, if it hurts and you've got a reactive tendon, that's an excellent opportunity to um to unload a little bit no one really knows how long it takes and it probably depends on so many individual factors yeah 
That's a yeah. terrible answer, but it's yeah, true. So, no, but, but so the reactive <laughs> is reversible. I mean, this is interesting to me. Reactive is reversible. So as soon as you get that initial pain, you have a chance to completely get rid of it. But at some point, if it gets to the degenerative stage, that's probably not going to change. Well, we can't change the pathology, but we can right. change pain and function. And that's what people care about. So that's what's really important to remember is that we're actually, it's not a goal to change the appearance of the tendon. It's a goal to change the person's pain and function. So that's always what we're dealing with. Will the tendon always look different on ultrasound? Yep, probably. Um, and that's why we don't repeatedly image. And that's why it's really important to counsel our patients and our athletes about what's an important outcome measure and an important outcome measure is your pain and function. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about that. We know that the tendons can degenerate a little bit. Uh, we know that that can cause pain, but it's kind of interesting that there's there's not as much correlation between the pathology and the tendon that you can objectively see and pain. So uh, tell us a little bit about how much correlation there is and how much, how much non-correlation there is between those things. So similar to pretty much every other musculoskeletal tissue in the body, there's very little correlation. We think that what we can see now in tendons is probably load-related change. So, Todd, if you played a lot of basketball and volleyball um, when you were going through adolescence, I, I could probably ultrasound your tennis. Great. Tennis and my knees did, did, yeah. Yeah, I could probably ultrasound your patellar tendons and see changes. What we know from Kevin Liebethal's work in the Achilles is we – whether or not you see changes in your Achilles tendon relates to how many years you've been running in people with no pain. So this is asymptomatic people. So we need to start to think about um, imaging in tendons in terms of this pathology or degeneration and all of those terms is probably being load-related change because you can see the exact same imaging change in someone without pain. So imaging's definitely not diagnostic. Um, we've recently run a consensus process with worldwide experts to, to agree on that, that imaging is actually not diagnostic for tendons um, because we can see the same changes in people without pain. Right. So I see you see all of these uh, famous studies where they find people without any back pain and they put them in the MRI and then 30% of them have this and 30% of them have that. And same with meniscus and the knee and, and rotator cuff. And so uh, it, you would you would find if you uh, you would find similar percentages of people with you know pathological tendons uh, if, if you just took a bunch of people without any pain in that area. Spot on. And if you look at some of the older research where imaging was used as a diagnostic criteria for people in the study, they'll report things like, you know, 50 to 60% of basketball players have patellar tendinopathy. Well, we've recently done a study that shows 50 to 60% of them have changes in their tendon, but very few of them have the clinical condition of patellar tendinopathy. Very few of them have pain. So they don't, they don't have the pain, uh, right. And, and we also, there are also some, uh, something interesting that I read about called, what is it? The, uh, jumpers paradox. Could, jumpers could you, knee paradox. Yeah. Yeah. What's that? So our best jumpers, and this gets back to your very first question around spring and function, our best jumpers are our most vulnerable, um, athletes to get patellar tendinopathy. So they're the ones that can jump the highest 
And that makes sense because if you have a young athlete who's really talented, just so they play basketball, if you are, you know, a young man and you can dunk, well, then what do you do? You dunk about a billion times. So not only are you good at it, you probably do it a lot. Exactly. And it's the same with the kid that's good at volleyball or tennis. What happens is they get picked for the school team, the club team, the state team, you know, and so we get this this um, overload as well. So not only are they good at it, they do more of it because they're good at it. So it's quite related. Yeah. So if you're looking at, uh, so you can, you can predict with a decent amount of accuracy, just knowing the sport uh, that they're in, that their tendons are going to have a lot of changes in them. Uh, you, you, and, and you, you, you might predict that they have, they have a higher incidence of pain in those areas too, though, right? Yeah. So so depending on the sport you work with, you can have a, a a really good idea of the sort of tendinopathies you will and won't see. So if you work with runners, you know, you're going to see some Achilles stuff, but you're not going to see um, patellar tendon. You work with, um, you know, basketball and volleyball and tennis, you'll see more patellar tendon than you will Achilles. You know, you work with um, hockey athletes, you're going to see hamstring tendinopathy. If you see older um, postmenopausal women, you know, you'll see gluteal tendinopathy. So it, it, it's we do see these, um, these subgroups. And, you know, another example in in imaging is a recent study with that Jill did with one of her PhD students is all of the women they imaged um, over 60 had changes in their gluteal tendons. So it was not one normal tendon, even in the control group, not one normal tendon. And these were people with, with or without pain? Both. So oh. there was not a normal tendon in the control group or the glute med tendinopathy group. So, so getting your tendons getting all kind of shitty over time is kind of like wrinkles on the inside of your, of your body that using that analogy is probably appropriate, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you, if you think about um, wrinkles as well, we should be thinking about tendons in the same way that it's still really functional. Like it might look different, um, but it, yeah. So it's not, it's not um, shitty in terms of its, its ability. It just, just, might, it just might look different. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> just just like the I'm outside. not suggesting we botox tendons by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh but I've read something that you know these these degenerative tendons that you know don't look so good the collagen's going all funny and there's areas that they describe as being rotting uh they they have a way of getting the job done and there might be something that's kind of weirdly adaptive about all these changes is that a good idea? Absolutely Todd and I think um the other thing that you've touched on really well is you know, all of these words that our patients use or that they might see on an imaging report, you know, can have a profound implication on, um, first of all, what they think they need to do for their tendons. So if someone thinks they've got tendonitis and we don't correct that language, that person's sort of underpinning is that it's inflamed. So there was a systematic review by Nikel in 2017, and they looked at how terms impact people's um, expected treatment. So if someone if someone breaks their bone and you call it a broken bone, 56% of lay people think you need a plaster cast. But if you call the same injury a crack in the bone, only 13% of people think they needed a plaster cast for the same injury. And that's true in tendons. If your patient's saying, oh, it's tendonitis or my tendon's rotten or it's hanging on by string, you could write the world's best exercise program and it wouldn't matter 
because they are likely to be non-adherent because they're the underpinning of what they think's going on, there's a mismatch with the advice you're giving them. So don't underestimate, um, you know, education. And, and as David Butler and Laura Mosley would say, meeting people at their story. Well, why do you think it's hanging on by thread? Well, actually, let me show you how adaptive your tendon is. See this big, thick tendon that you've got on imaging, this increase in anterior posterior diameter? Brilliant. That's fantastic. It's highly adaptive. And what we need to do now is get our loads right, sort out any muscle deficits you've got, and you're going to do really well. That's good. So so if some podcaster were to describe degenerative ten- tendons as being shitty, then that would be much more likely for all of his listeners to be in more pain. I'm yes, just not up. helpful. <laughs> Spot on. <laughs> so, so uh, before we get to like all of the reasons that tendons might hurt, besides what's going on in the tendon, uh, which is kind of what I'm really interested in, what what exactly is the the peripheral generator there? What is it in the tendon that's that's sending out nociceptive signals? Do we know that, or is that kind of uh, unknown? No, it's actually completely unknown, which is um, not dissimilar to osteoarthritis, patellofemoral joint pain, actually, we, we actually know very little about the nociceptive driver in a lot of our um, musculoskeletal pain conditions. Aside from an acute injury like an ankle sprain where we have this inflammatory cascade, um, but in a tendon, we don't know what we, we know much more about what it isn't. So I told you before about the nerves and vessels. At one point, we thought that that was the answer, but actually reactive tendons can be really painful and they don't have any neovascularization. So it can't be that. Also, you can have neovascularization, so these nerves and vessels, and have no pain. So um, we know that it's not a triphasic inflammatory condition like an ankle sprain. Um, so there's inflammatory cytokines and there's kind of communication, but it's it's a different process. Um, but we actually don't know what causes nociception or what drives nociception. Yeah, it and fits then the- with it being nociceptive though, like the um, the behaviour. Uh huh. And then there's the question of you know if you've got uh, this pathology in your tendon, and we know that it's related to physical activities uh, that you're doing, and you can pinch right where it hurts. And so you you kind of really think that's a peripheral problem. But we also know what's going on in the brain, what's going on in the nervous system plays a big role. So there's this question about whether you know it's a, there's a this is really a central problem or a peripheral problem, or whether there's really any difference between those because the two new parts talk to each other. Uh, that makes me want to ask you about. Uh, bilateral tendon pain because that's kind of part fits in with that that whole question absolutely and i think bilateral tendon pain is really interesting because you can make a load related argument you know that you have loaded each leg you can make a a spinal cord related argument um and you can certainly make a, a a brain related argument for each of those things so you it's it's incredibly complex but incredibly interesting um, the bilaterality. Yeah. So, uh, well, which of those arguments do you come down on? Are you pretty open? I'm pretty open. I, I don't think, um, my question would be when people want to talk about central sensitization, my, my challenge always is, are you only reserving, you know, education for that group? Because we, we talk about pain science and we talk about education, but we shouldn't be reserving it for people that we, 
think um, have central sensitization. What we should be doing is appropriate education. So exactly as you said, they they talk to each other. We actually should be offering that for everyone. So if we look at, um, just say we think the tendon is uh, a nociceptive condition, if we, if we break it down, if we think the tendon is a nociceptive condition, then what are we going to do? Remove the provocative loads, you know, apply gradual loading, you know, that, that, apply some education, fantastic. If we think we have peripheral sensitization, and we probably do because it hurts to touch, what are we going to do? Not poke it. Great. I'm happy with that. We're going to apply, you know, loads that are below a provocative um, threshold. We're going to you know, educate them. If we think we have central sensitization, again, what are we going to do? Not poke it, apply graded exposure, graded activity. So for me, tendons is this beautiful marriage of all of those things because we should be applying graded activity, graded exposure, education, but in a specific way. You know, you can't just tell people with Achilles tendinopathy to to be active. Um, it's about understanding load and demand. Right. Um I want to talk about uh, motor control. You've done some interesting work looking at uh, motor control issues related to tendon pain, including whether you're inhibited, how strong you are when you're in pain, uh, whether certain areas are excitable. And there's a lot of interesting puzzles and mysteries there as well. Yep, absolutely. So um, the first study of my PhD, I hypothesized that we wouldn't see anything because when we were testing people with patellar tendinopathy and they were sitting in a biodex doing, you know, leg extension, it's not painful for someone with patellar tendinopathy. So my very nociceptive musculoskeletal physio brain went, well, they're not in pain at the time, um, so we won't see anything. So I was wrong, and that's great, that's science. And so then um, we found that people with patellar tendinopathy So these young jumping men had this highly excitable um, pathway where they had this lack of ability to sort of modulate their quadriceps. So their leg extension had sort of no response and then everything was on and then they plateaued as opposed to our young jumping male athletes with no pain or pathology had this graded motor response. Um, And we also at the same time, saw this uh, inhibition. So it's like they had one foot on the accelerator and one foot on the brake. They had a really different profile of of control. So why would someone drive a car with one uh, foot on the accelerator and one in the brake? Is that because some part of them is perceived that this is a dangerous condition? I think think you've touched on it. And I also think these competing demands, if I play volleyball, I want to jump really high. And so we have these sort of competing demands in the brain between um, this complex condition where it might hurt at the start, but then it warms up and I feel better and I can, I can nail that spike. So we, we have performance demands, we have pain, we have, um, the, the context, you know, I love volleyball, I love my mates, as opposed to, you know, I might be at work and I've got elbow pain and I hate my boss. You know, there's so many of those other um, biopsychosocial contributors to that situation. So I think the, the accelerator and brake is a good example of the competing demands. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, it, in my personal experience, I've I've had a lot of, I've played a lot of kind of racket sports and, and uh, ball sports and have had lots of, you know, minor irritations that are obviously related 
to tendons and, and like with the knees and uh, my experiences, that is, that is really something that can uh, really modulate itself just with like a warm up. Like I can, like there have been times like going out in the squash court, I'm really, really, really slow until I warm up and then I'm normal speed or like really easy to modulate with just like a set of some sort of resistance exercise type of a situation. I mean, like really big changes. Yeah, tendons, tendons, that's such a classic behavior is that they warm up actually. And that can be why some of the people listening will go, oh, that's why I overdo it because I warm up and I do more than I probably should and then I feel worse the next day. So my little clinical tip in terms of rehabilitation is we don't get people to do um, an activity based on how they feel at the time. It should be predetermined and based to how they're progressing and, you know, their 24-hour load response. Um, but the other thing that you you touched on as well about the, the racket sports is so much of it also relates to the culture. So knee pain in volleyball is pretty common. So no one really panics and everyone kind of just warms up and it's, it's, it's like this positive culture. Um, positive is probably the wrong word, but no one's, no one's frightened we see less kinesiophobia because it's really quite uncommon to rupture a patella tendon. You usually have some sort of underlying collagen disorder, but people, you know, you'll see with Achilles tendinopathy are worried about rupture because, you know, it's, it's more common. The irony being, if you have pain, you're unlikely to rupture because pain's quite protective. Right. Cause that, I suppose that inhibits you. What is the, the additional risk from a rupture uh, based on the pathology? So if you, we know very little about the people that rupture because we don't see them until they rupture because they aren't the ones that are presenting clinically. What we do know is that you have a, you have a increased odds ratio of rupturing the other side. Um, I think it's something like 13 times the general population. But having said that, I think there was only like six people in that study that re-ruptured. And so it's a, it's, it's an example of the um, stats being quite dramatic, but the clinical kind of risk is probably much lower than that. Because when you think about that logically, if you saw a patient with an Achilles rupture, part of your rehabilitation is going to protect each side. You're going to do rehabilitation on each side. Gotcha. Okay. So let's talk uh, more about treatment. Um, there's been a lot of you know, kind of traditionally, there's the idea that you do eccentric exercise, and now it seems like that's fallen out of fashion a little bit. Can you talk us through some of the basic treatments for tendinopathies and what's the research and support? Absolutely. So I think the key thing for people to keep in mind is that all of our modes of exercise have a role. And I want people to think about when they have a role. So the original research in um, eccentrics, when it was applied to in-season, showed that it actually made people more sore. So would I do an eccentric-only program in-season? No, I wouldn't. Um, but do we need eccentric contractions as part of our rehabilitation? Absolutely. So this is what I would encourage people to do. Use each bit of research that comes along as a way of building on your evidence base. Don't take one paper and disregard everything you've seen before it. The reason I say that, Todd, is the heavy slow resistance program is fantastic, but I don't use it because it's double leg. And we know from Jamie Gator's work 
that if you have a unilateral tendinopathy, you have gross asymmetry. And if you do a bilateral exercise, you actually won't address that asymmetry. So I use heavy slow resistance and I use isotonic exercise, but I do it single leg in a quite isolated way. So if we go right back to the start of what we're talking about in terms of tendon load, we know we need to remove our provocative loads. What are our provocative loads? Anything fast, anything squashy, okay? So we take those out to begin with. Therefore, the reverse engineering of that is what can we start with? We can start with anything static and anything slow. Even if it's heavy, it's not hard for the tendon. might be hard for the muscle, but it's not hard for the tendon. So we know just with um, first principles that we can start with isometrics and isotonics. Then what we do is we build up the strength using isotonics in the associated muscle and in the rest of the kinetic chain. So if you have someone with quadriceps tendinopathy, uh, sorry, um, patella tendinopathy, and they have a small quadricep, they probably have a small calf as well, which is another reason I wouldn't just do eccentric, you know, decline squats. If you don't address their calf capacity, you'll overload the patella tendon when they go to, you know, lunge at a tennis net because the calf won't decelerate the tibia and you load up the anterior knee. Does that make sense? Yeah, but but does the, I understand about the calf, but does the, how does the quadriceps matter? Oh, can, absolutely. Can, how does a bigger quadriceps protect a patellar tendon? So if you have a good enough um way of distributing the force across the kinetic chain, then you'll you'll absorb the force in a really even way. So if you don't have um, the right muscle strength, you don't have a good scaffold for the tendon to do its job. Okay. Okay. Um, and what about this idea of um, treat the uh, treat the donut, not the whole? Uh, in light of the fact that tendons don't adapt that well, is that in your mind uh, likely to be a good explanation for how this stuff actually makes us feel better? So um, that's getting our patients and our clinicians to think about um, adapting the healthy tendon, and that is is highly adaptive. What doesn't really change is the the whole or the area of pathology. So I think um, I think it is a really positive message. And, you know, following on from our strength, retraining the spring is the, the final part of that little story that I didn't talk about just then. So I think it is a, a really important thing to think about. Okay. What about training with metronomes? This is something that I find very interesting that you've recommended. Tell us about that. So this was based on um, the research seeing the change in motor drive to the excitability and the inhibition. And then if you look at the neuroscience literature, um, we know from lots of research that just doing strength training actually doesn't change those pathways. So you'll get stronger in your muscle, but you don't change your excitability and inhibition. You don't change your brake and your accelerator. So the metronome is a, a simple way that clinicians can make a strength exercise like a leg extension more skilled and more planned from a brain perspective. So your brain might say, right, I've got three seconds to extend my knee and I've got four seconds to lower my knee. I have to constrain my movement and plan. So my frontal lobe's involved. I have to constrain it into seven seconds. The brain actually um, 
anticipates the rhythm. You actually change your brain waves and you get all of these fabulous little interneurons and connections between lots of different parts of your brain. And that's what changes your brake and your accelerator. Um, so it's a way of combining exercise and load and what we need with a method of the neuroscience and changing the, the brake and the accelerator. Yeah. So is it, is it possible that you could get similar changes by introducing like other kinds of coordination demands into strength training? I'm just thinking about uh, doing like free weights as opposed to machines or single leg work that incorporates a balance element. I'm thinking of like a, uh, like a, a lunge with dumbbells has a balance element. It's a little bit more engaging to the nervous system than just doing a knee extension. Is there anything to that idea? I think there is. I think there's a lot of different ways that this can be done, you know, um, using mirrors, using different techniques. The key thing for people to take away is that repetitive, unskilled exercise doesn't change your motor cortex. So it's about finding ways to make it a skill. And I think some of the suggestions that you have are really good. Um, and I think it's an exciting new area that we need to keep researching so we can keep keep giving people options. Um, you know, even just for the variety of training. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Well, you mentioned keep researching. Uh, what what are some what what are some areas of research in tendons that you're looking forward to or that you're working on that you'd like to tell us about? I feel really passionately about differential diagnosis. I think what happens at the moment is we image a tendon, we squeeze a tendon, we stick them in a study. And the problem with that is in the Achilles, someone could have a peritendon issue, a sural nerve issue, so many different conditions, and we put them in. And then what happens, Todd, is some people get better, some people get worse, some people stay the same, and we say more research is needed, and it does my head in. <laughs> I think we need to be far better at explaining the heterogeneity of, of what goes in. Um, we need to move away from imaging and palpation as diagnostic criteria because they're both sensitive. They'll pick up a lot of people, but they're non-specific. You include a lot of different conditions. So I think a lot of the tendon research is difficult for clinicians to take anything away from. Um, so I feel really strongly about differential diagnosis. So I've got a couple of projects on the go in there. Um, I'd like to do some more brain stuff because that's the stuff I'm really interested in. So I'm playing around with a, a little bit of um, a few techniques there too. Great. Well, we'll look forward to uh, to hearing more from you about that. Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the chat. Okay.